six. So um, this is one of my favorite chapters, chapter four, We Agnostic. So if you have your big book, if you want to start on page 44, and it starts out by saying, in the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. Okay, what have we learned? What do they say that by this point, we should have learned? So if we turn the page back to the bottom of page 43, they tell us once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. The compulsive eater has no effective mental defense against the first compulsive bite. What does that mean that we have no effective mental defense? Um, because there's a lot of new people here. I'm going to take a few minutes and talk about that, which is really step one. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over food and our lives had become unmanageable. What does it mean to be powerless and to have no mental defense? Well, on page 24 of our big book, it says that we are people who are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago. We're without defense against the first drink. Okay, that all sounds really weird. Defense, memory, but I think this is what they mean. Normally, my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory. So for instance, um, my best example is I have a terrible cat allergy. So stored in my brain are all these memories of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go near a cat, my memory will grab the data points that say, you went to a pet store and you had an asthma attack. You went to a friend's house who had a cat and you couldn't breathe. You were around a cat this time and you got a sinus infection. Generates a little thought that runs across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger. Cats will give you an asthma attack. So I have a mental defense. I remember that cats give me an asthma attack. Um, but what if I didn't? What if I kept going into pet stores and thinking this time will be different? Because that's kind of how my brain worked when it came to food. So when I was in um, college, I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies. They'd come in a box of 20. I would go down to the store and buy a box and tell myself I was going to have just one or two. We all know how that story ended, right? So stored in my memory were these data points you bought a box of cookies. You said you were just going to have one or two, but you ate the whole box. The next day, you bought a box of cookies, said you were going to have one or two. You ate the whole box, and then you got a set second box. All these data points. So my brain does its job, grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to say, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one cookie. You're going to eat the whole box. You're going to gain weight. You're going to hate yourself tomorrow. Don't do it, except unlike with cats, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind was broken and that thought couldn't get across. And that is what it means to have no mental defense. The part of me that remembered strongly enough to deter me couldn't make it over to my conscious mind where I make my decisions. 
So it says we have no effective mental defense, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. That means the group can't, no matter how much you all love me, you can't give me that kind of defense. It says his defense must come from a higher power, capital H, capital P. So then we turn the page and it says, okay, you've learned something of alcoholism, of compulsive eating, that we understand that our bridge is broken and that our memories can't protect us. Now what? They say, okay, if when you honestly want to, you can't quit entirely, or if when eating, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably a compulsive eater. And it says, if that's the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. So if my memory doesn't protect me, they're telling me I have an illness. So an illness has a set um, set group of symptoms and a protocol for getting better, right? If I have pneumonia, I have certain symptoms. I sneeze, I cough, and there's a protocol for getting better. You know, have a nebulizer in, in my room, take penicillin, and if I do the protocol, I get better. So they're saying we have an illness and the protocol, the way to get better is a spiritual experience. They say that is the only thing that will conquer it. Okay, that's way different than Weight Watchers where they say the right food plan will conquer it. They say a spiritual experience. Okay, what is a spiritual experience? And our book defines it on page 25 says the great fact is just this and nothing less. So guys, we should settle for nothing less than what's offered, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And here's what that is. It revolutionizes our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. He has commenced to rid us of the disease of compulsive eating, of the obsession with food, which we could never do by ourselves. So that is the solution to have this kind of spiritual experience where God basically comes into our hearts and does a renovation job. And they say, okay, to one who feels he is an atheist or an agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. And I love how they say it. To one who feels he's an atheist or agnostic, they're saying, yeah, you may feel you are, you may think you are, but you're really not. Because as page 55 tells us, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It just may be blocked by a lot of things. And we'll talk about that next week. Um, so it says, but to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he is an alcoholic, a compulsive eater of the hopeless variety. And they say to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. I think it's interesting how they say to live on a spiritual basis. They don't say to believe certain spiritual things. I always believed in God my entire life. I don't think there was ever a day where I didn't believe in God, but I didn't live on a spiritual basis. I lived on a selfish, self-centered basis where all I cared about was myself 
and getting, as I called it, getting my needs met, but which was really for me, a code word for being able to live a selfish, self-centered lifestyle, doing whatever I wanted, not caring who I hurt. Living on a spiritual basis is the opposite. And then they tell us it isn't so difficult. So guys, if you're here and you don't believe there's a God or you're not sure there's a God, they say, it's not so difficult to get to the point where you have a spiritual experience. They say half our original fellowship were of that type. Half of the original founders of AA were atheists or agnostic. So that can give us hope. And it says, we tried to avoid this issue, hoping we're not real alcoholics, real compulsive eaters. But we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life. What's a spiritual basis of life? It's basically trust God, clean up the wreckage of our past, fix the damage that we've done, and try to live a life where we're honest, have integrity, and help others. And it says, cheer up. Something like half of us thought we were atheist agnostics. Again, we, we may think we are, we may feel we are, but they're telling us we're really not deep down inside. And then they tell us what won't work. Bottom of page 44, they say, if a mere code of morals or better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism or compulsive eating, many of us would have recovered long ago. So what's a code of morals? I think that's something like the 10 commandments or you know any a church code or a religious code to try to live up to it and interesting they say but we found such codes and philosophies did not save us no matter how much we tried we are people who need to be saved we need to be rescued and if i need to be rescued like let's say i'm in an undertow it doesn't matter how much i try i need to be rescued um and it says, we could wish to be moral, right? We could wish to follow a moral code. We could will it with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. I didn't even have the power to follow my own moral code. I couldn't even like be a nice person if I wanted to. And it says, our human resources as marshaled by the will failed utterly. I was utterly bankrupt. Well, how come? Um, because in order to have the power to do anything, even follow a more, my own moral code, I need to be surrendered. Our book tells us either God is everything or else he's nothing. So I can't on my own power try to pick and choose which parts of a code I'll follow. It doesn't work that way, as, as we'll see. So then some of the um, most important, I think, paragraphs in the book, it says lack of power that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how are we to find this power? Okay, if we wanna solve a problem, we first need to define the problem. And here they're telling us what our problem is. It's not lack of desire. I had a desire to stop eating compulsively for my first six and a half years in Overeaters Anonymous. I had a strong desire. It didn't work because lack of desire isn't my problem, nor is lack of a good moral code, nor is lack of a good food plan, the perfect food plan. They're telling me lack of power is my problem and that I have to tap into a source of power greater than myself. They say, well, obviously, right? 
if I have one unit of power and the illness of compulsive eating has 10 units of power, there's no way I'm going to win. I need to find a unit of power that's at least 11 units of power. And they say, well, where and how are we to find this power? And then, thank God, they say, well, that's exactly what this book is about. It's main object. So the numero uno purpose of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So let's play God detective, that we're detectives looking for clues about God to see if God exists. So what do they tell us? The main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Okay, if this power is going to solve my problem, that tells me a few things about this power. First, it has to have a consciousness, right? A doorknob um, can't solve my problem. A light bulb can't solve my problem because they can't think. A hurricane can't solve my problem. It can't think. So this power must be able to think and reason. Um, this power must be strong because again, if I have one unit of power, the illness has 10 units, this power must have at least 11 units. So it's gotta be strong. And most important, if this power is going to solve my problem, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would it, why would he, bother trying to solve my problem. So smart, powerful, and cares about me. We have our first clues about God. And they say, we've written a book, which is spiritual, that pertains to my relationship with God, as well as moral, pertains to my relationship with others, how I live on this planet. And it says, and it means, of course, we are going to talk about God. I mean, they make no bones about it, that God is the solution. Now it's God as each individual understands him. So you could have a Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, you know, non-religious concept of God. The big book is okay with all of that, but they're, they're clear that it's God. And they say, sometimes it's difficult for people. Many times we talk to a new man and watch his hope rise as we discuss his alcoholic problems, right, the broken bridge, and explain our fellowship and what a wonderful thing our fellowship is, right? That we can love each other and support each other and give each other guidance and be there for each other. But that's not the solution. As much as I may love someone or someone may love me, I can't infuse them with power and no one else can infuse me with power. Um, we can build each other up until we're able to tap into that power, but we ultimately need that power. And it says, but as face falls, when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God, for we've reopened a subject, our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. And then they tell us, we know how he feels. We've shared his honest doubt and prejudice. And then this paragraph gives us four prejudices, prejudices that people can have against God. Um, number one, it says, the word God brought up a particular idea of him with which someone had tried to impress them during childhood. Or perhaps we saw how someone acted, a parent, and that impressed upon us a particular idea of God. And it wasn't a very healthy or helpful idea about God. 
Um, number two, people think if I believe in God, that makes me weak. If I believe in God, it makes me weak. Number three, if there was a God, there wouldn't be war and all this calamity. I mean, that's a problem that Bill Wilson had. He said he, on page 11, he talks about, he said, the war that he'd seen in World War I, the burning, the chicanery, he said, it, he went so far as to say, if there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal. That got in his way. It was a prejudice that blocked his view of God. But I think it's always so interesting that we look at bad things that happen, like um, war or maybe a baby who's born with a disability, and we say, there can't be a God. But we never look at the good things, like a child who's born healthy or a day when I don't get in a car accident or the fact that um, there's a beautiful sunset and say, there must be a God. It's like God gets blamed for all the bad things in our lives, but he doesn't get the credit for all the good things in our lives. So sometimes we're not fair. Um, and the fourth thing is many people who claim to be godly don't act godly. So there can't be a God. Well, that's like if I meet, um, you know, one Eskimo and that Eskimo is not nice to me, then I say all Eskimos are not nice people. You know, it's, no, we can't do that. The same, you know, again, we look at the nun who, you know, hit us on the wrist with a ruler when we were kids, but we don't look at Mother Teresa. So it's like we have a slant toward looking at the negative and sometimes we're unfair to God. And then I think there's a fifth reason that a lot of us have for not believing in God. And that's if I acknowledge that there's a God, I can't do what I want. I can't keep cheating on my taxes or cheating on my husband or you know whatever it is that we're doing wrong. If we believe in God, because we say, well, if there was a God, he wouldn't be okay with me doing this. Therefore, I just won't believe in him. So what do we do? Um, it's, we need to ferret out these prejudices. So here's an assignment that I generally give my, well, I always give my sponsees. I say, look at all these prejudices, see which ones you have, and don't just stop there. Refute it, think about it, analyze it, see if it's really true. Um, like if someone says, well, I was raised with a God who, you know, is up there with a the book, writing down my good deeds and my bad deeds. And if my bad deeds are more than my good deeds, then five seconds after I die, he's waiting up for me with a baseball bat. And then think, okay, well, just because I was brought up that way, does that mean it's true? This book tells me I can choose my own conception of God, which means I can fire that God and pick a loving conception of God, a God who will help me. So we want to spend some time like looking at our prejudices and then trying to get rid of them. And then they tell us, page 46, let us make haste to reassure you. We found as, as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice so that we do by thinking, we, you know, we use our brains, we can talk with our fellows, we think about it and we pray about it um, and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commence to get results. And the next paragraph will tell us what these results are. So express a willingness. 
how can we express a willingness to believe in God if we don't know if we do? And we can, and I think it can go something like this. We can say a prayer and we can say a prayer even if we're not sure that God exists. And it can go something like this. God, I don't know if you're there. And if you do exist, I don't know if you care about me. But if you do exist and you do care, please help me. And in the meantime, I'll do everything that I think you would want me to if you in fact exist. Um, the worst that could happen is that there's no God and we're talking to dead air in an empty room. But what if there really is a God? And what if that prayer is a catalyst that starts things going in the spiritual realm? Because remember, we can't hand God a $50 bill. That's not how things work in the spiritual world. The spiritual world is activated by faith and prayer. Look at the step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It's a really weird concept if you think about it. It's not like a four step where we write an inventory or a fifth step where we disclose our inventory or a ninth step where we make amends. The second step is about coming to believe something. Why is it so important to believe something? Because belief and faith is a catalyst in the spiritual world. Me believing that God can restore me to sanity is a catalyst um, that allows God to restore me to sanity. I guess it's like the spiritual equivalent of handing someone a $50 bill. I don't want to make it sound like God's transactional, but that's the best example I can think of. You know, faith is the currency in the spiritual world. So we want to work on it. If we don't believe, we want to get to the point where we're willing to believe, where we can believe. And it says, um, we begin to get results, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. So they're really clear that the solution is God. And then they tell us, much to our relief, we discovered we didn't need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to affect a contact with him. I mean, those are magnificent words, contact. We are going to make contact with the creator of the universe. And it says, here's how we do it. As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed. Something possesses us. And what possesses us? A new sense of power. Remember, that's my problem, lack of power. So here in this step, I get my first infusion of power, power and direction, right? Like, what am I supposed to do next? provided we take other simple steps. So I can't just get to the point where I say, okay, I believe God might exist and then stop there. I have to keep going. And then they give us a beautiful promise. We found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. Look at that word, seek him. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. See that word again, seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. So we have to seek, but God's not hiding in a hard place. Um, and how do we seek him? 
Well, one thing I always tell my sponsees from day one, start spending time with God in the morning. Whether you believe or don't believe, at least 30 minutes in prayer, meditation, spiritual reading. Because if we want to have a relationship with someone, anyone, right? Those of us who are married, think about when we first met our husbands. We wanted to spend time with them. And so God actually wants to spend time with us. So we want to spend that time with him every morning. And they tell us on page 47, that again, they assure us when we speak to you of God, we mean your own concept of God. And at the start, asking yourself about spiritual terms and what they mean to you, it's all we needed to begin spiritual growth, to affect our first conscious relation with God. Again, they're not talking about belief. They're talking about relationship. And they say, we need to ask ourselves just one question. Do I now believe or am I willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? And I say willingness is a decision, right? Um, on page 58, it tells us if you want what we, if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. So I can make a decision to be willing to believe. And it says um, that it's great news for us that we can start small because we had assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith, which seemed difficult to believe. So they're telling us right away, we can start practicing spiritual principles. What are the spiritual principles? Um, Karen M went through the big book and made a list of all of the spiritual principles in the book. And they are on our website. So if someone can throw that information in the chat and then anyone can print it out and see the spiritual principles that we can all start practicing at the beginning. We can start with that. For myself, from day one, I started being honest. I was a person who lied all the time. And I just, um, my sponsor told me I had to be honest or I would get dropped right away. So I just made a decision. I was going to be honest no matter what. So I would catch myself like mid-sentence, not being honest. I would say, wait, what I just said, that wasn't true. I just worked on being honest. I started doing things that were unselfish, like making um, sandwiches for homeless people in New York City. We do what we know. We start where we are. Okay. And then it tells us um, what handicaps us. Page 48, it says, we're handicapped by obstinacy, which is a stubborn refusal to change our opinions, sensitiveness, and unreasoning prejudice. And then they just say, yeah, this sort of thinking has to be abandoned. They don't say, okay, if you're sensitive, let's go slow, tiptoe around your feelings. They say, no, that sensitivity, it's got to be abandoned. It says, though some of us resisted, we didn't find a great difficulty in casting aside these feelings. And here's why. Faced with alcoholic destruction, compulsive eating destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. In other words, a real first step makes us open-minded. I mean, I am not open-minded at all about chemotherapy now because I don't have cancer. But a person who knows she has cancer 
might become open-minded about chemotherapy. So, and then they go ahead and say, okay, a reader may ask why he should believe in a power greater than himself. And they say, we think there's good reason. And then they go on and they talk about like electricity and the prosaic steel girder and electrons and all that. And what they're really saying is, do you understand electricity? I mean, I don't, but I use it. I turn light switches on and off. I don't know how it gets from somewhere, I don't even know where, into wires that carry it into my house. And if I flick a I have no, I mean, like, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. But do I say, you know what? Until I understand electricity, I am not turning on the lights. No, that wouldn't be smart. I need electricity. Well, I needed God. So even though I didn't and still don't understand him, except now I understand that he is good and that he loves me and that he loves compulsive eaters and loves to launch search and rescue missions for us. But I know like very little about him, but um, I still want to tap into his power because otherwise I'm a dead woman walking and maybe a dead woman not walking. And they tell us on page 49, instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever advancing creation. Okay, isn't that a beautiful image? We are agents, intelligent agents, right? We're supposed to think, right? Our book tells us God gave us brains to use. Spearheads of God's ever advancing creation. Spearheads, that means we're on the front line of God's plan. So if one of God's plans is to save and rescue addicts, rescue other compulsive eaters, we are on the front lines of that. We are agents for that. What a great sense of purpose. I don't know about y'all, but um, I used to always sit and wonder, why am I here? What's my purpose? What's my reason for living? I don't wonder about that anymore. This program, these 12 steps have given me a great sense of purpose. I am an agent, not always intelligent, um, I try, but an agent of God's ever advancing creation. And it says, instead of that, we agnostics and atheists chose to believe our human intelligence was the last word, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and end, rather vain of us, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know if it was vain, but in my case, it certainly wasn't smart because when I thought my intelligence was the be all and end all, all it got me was like, you know, with my head in a toilet, stealing food, having horrible relationships with people and feeling lonely and depressed. Um, it's way more fun to be an agent of God's ever advancing creation, way more fun. So they say, we who've traveled this path beg you to lay aside prejudice, even against organized religion, right? A lot of us have that. Um, it says, okay, so there may be human frailties of these this faith, right? So they don't sit, sit there and try and convince us that all religions are perfect. They say, no, people are human, people are frail, they've made mistakes. But what we do is that we cynically dissect them. I looked up the word cynical and it says bitterly or sneeringly distrustful. So that's, you know, that's what we do. Instead of looking and seeing that religion produced 
Mother Teresa, you know, we look at maybe the clergymen who have abused their authority with young people. I'd rather look at Mother Teresa and see that that's what religion produced. And it says, what we're really supposed to observe is that many spiritually minded people of all races, colors, and creeds were demonstrating a degree of stability, happiness, and usefulness, which we should have sought ourselves. That's what we're supposed to look at. And that's how we can judge our own religious or spiritual practice. Am I stable? That means, you know, do I not fly off the handle at every little thing? Am I happy? They're not a hundred percent of the time, right? I mean, few of us are happy a hundred percent of the time, but am I, am I content with what God has given me with the role that he's assigned me? And am I useful? Those are the things we should be seeking. Stability, happiness, and usefulness. And page 50, it says, instead, we look at the human defects of these people and we use their shortcomings as a basis of wholesale condemnation. Um, about, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, I was driving and then this car um, cut us off and the guy was really nasty about it. It was like it was on purpose to cut us off and then drove like really slowly. And I looked at the license plate and it was, you know, from this state where I didn't think I knew anybody. And my immediately, my immediate first thought was, People from the state of blank are jerks. Um, and then I actually realized a woman in recovery jam who's from that state. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's not true. Um, but see what I did, like this wholesale condemnation, you know, meet one person from the state. And then I think that whole state, you know, there should only be 49 states. But that state should be evicted. Um, what did I do? Wholesale condemnation, right? And it says, we talk about other people being intolerant, of religion being intolerant, but we were intolerant ourselves. And we missed the beauty of the forest because we were diverted by the ugliness of some of the trees. And then what do they say? We never gave the spiritual side of life a fair hearing. We weren't fair. And then they switch gears and they say, okay, read some of the stories in the big book. Read the stories in the back of the book. I particularly like the ones they like at the very back, like they lost all um, people who were, you would say, there's no way these people would ever recover, but they did. And they say, what do you find in the stories? You find a wide variation in the way each teller approaches and conceives of the power greater than ourselves. That's why we tell our stories. I always, when someone's about to share for the first time and they're nervous, I say, make God the hero of your story. Then you won't be nervous because it's not about us. It's about him. It's about how we approach God, how we conceive of God. And then they tell us on one proposition, all the men and women, all the people who wrote their stories, the founders of AA are strikingly agreed. I find that funny, like to get a hundred alcoholics to strikingly agree on anything. But what do they agree on? They've all gained access to and believe in a power greater than themselves, which in each case, 100% of the time has accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. So if we're struggling to believe in God, we can look at what God has done for other people. 
people come to believe in and not just believe in, right? But gained access. I can believe in electricity, but if I never flick the switch, I'm going to be sitting in the dark. And that this power, this God has in a hundred percent of the people who do these steps accomplish the miraculous miracles, the humanly impossible. They say, let's look at the record. Here are thousands of men and women, worldly indeed. Like these weren't people, you know, sitting off on a mountaintop meditating all day. These were like people, regular people who had jobs and kids and, you know, lives. It says they declare that since they've done a few, come to believe in a power greater than themselves. So faith, take a certain attitude toward that power, humility and surrender. He's in charge. I'm not. And to do certain simple things, clear away the wreckage of my past, help others. There's been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. Well, that's what a spiritual experience talked about, right? A revolutionary change in the way we live, how we act toward others, and the way we think, what's important to us. It just changes. In the face of collapse, Janet, are you okay? Yeah, my, I'm sorry, my internet or whatever just flaked for a second. Okay, so they say, so since they've come to believe in a power greater than themselves, take an attitude toward that power and do certain simple things, there's a revolutionary change. In the face of collapse and despair and total failure of their human resources. So this program isn't for the person who just wants to lose 10 pounds to look good for the high school reunion. It's for people who are like the way I was on the brink of collapse, inner despair, total failure of my human resources. And what do we find? A new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. Not that it was like Star Wars, you know, the force inside me waiting to be awakened. It flowed into me from God. And what do we get? We get power, power over the obsession. Remember, lack of power is our problem. And now we get power over the obsession. We get peace. The chatter in our brain stops. We're just like, okay with what happens. We get happiness not always because our circumstances change. Often they do because we start like attracting nice people because we're, we're nicer people. So we're happier. Um, but just we learn to be grateful for whatever God gives us and a sense of direction. We have an idea of our purpose. And that happens, it says, soon after we wholeheartedly meet a few simple requirements. Once confused and baffled, page 51, by the seeming futility of existence, we show why life was hard. And they say, leaving aside the drink question. So even if we were abstinent, life was unsatisfactory, but then we change. And what do people say? Hundreds of people say is the most important fact of our lives. It says the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives. They say that's a powerful reason why one should have faith. 
I am aware and believe all the time that God is here. I don't always feel him, but I have a knowledge that God is here and that if I turn to him, he will listen to me. Um, and I think we're going to stop there on page 51. Awesome, Janet. Thank 